I ate them like salad. Books were my sandwich for lunch, my tiffin and dinner, and midnight munch. I tore out the pages, ate them with salt, doused them with relish, gnawed on the bindings, turned the chapters with my tongue. Books by the dozen, the score, and the billion. I carried so many home I was hunchbacked for years. Philosophy, art history, politics, social science, the poem, the essay, the grandiose play, you name them, I ate them. This is a quote from Fahrenheit 451, a book that is seeming to be, unfortunately, becoming more and more relevant once again. This story by Ray Bradbury is set in a society that attempts to eliminate all sources of complexity, contradiction, and confusion to ensure uncomplicated happiness for all of its citizens. In specific, the main source of these horrible seas is books. So Bradbury writes about a world in 2049, which is not too far off, just saying, where all books that are found are burned by an oppressive government. All right. So our government isn't exactly burning massive piles of books in the streets, but they are banning a huge number. Last year, there were over 1,600 books banned from school libraries in the United States. Were any of those books on your reading list? I know in our holiday episode, you told us about your goal for the year. Yeah, so my goal is to read 104 books this year, which doubles my completed goal last year of 52 books. And I'm on 31 now, so I am 15 books ahead of schedule. The books themselves, I hope many of these are not in schools. <laughs> they definitely don't belong near children in a lot of cases. What uh, what what kind of genres are you reading, Kelly? Should we be worried about this? I think some of it can just be aptly summarized as fairy porn. Okay. All right. I, I could see why that might not be allowed in school. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we are talking about books that are being banned in schools today, and, and we are going to list some of the reasons. And I hadn't had fairy porn on the list, but I might add that to the script. It's a really robust universe that is built in these stories. So don't let the uh, <laughs> don't let the shocking genre name uh, deter you from reading those books, unless you're a child. I was going to ask if you have to write like book reports, if you're in a book club and you have to check in after you read some of these. And now more than ever, I'm, I'm curious about what these book reports would look like. Well, I do have a few places that I talk about books. Uh, there's a Wednesday book club on Twitter where we all kind of have a conversation amongst some friends. I do TikToks about a lot of the books that I read. I review every book I read on Goodreads. I usually just give it a star rating. I don't usually write a review, but I do talk about these books with a lot of people. I don't write a report per se, but I could. The language used to describe the imagery of fairies in this particular book was quite excellent. Very vivid. <laughs> if you need help with some of those reviews, I think I actually have somebody here for you today joining us on the show. Janella Lee Magara is, according to the UC Irvine website, 
Queen of Papyrus and the Written Language. Is is that right, Janella? Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. Oh, good. <laughs> that's UC Irvine's website translated into something Kelly would understand with her fairy books. <laughs> I think you fundamentally misunderstood what my books are about, but we can talk about that another time. <laughs> <laughs> you started this. I'm intrigued. <laughs> I'll give you some recommendations later. Oh, thank you. Besides being Queen of Papyrus, Janella also has her master's in English and has taught English and ESL at several colleges. So fitting to bring her on for an episode where we're going to be talking about banning books, which uh, in the U.S. at least mostly happens in schools. Happy to have another lit aficionado or burgeoning (laughs) fairy porn aficionado with us today. So I have a pop quiz for you two book aficionados with all your reading and writing and arithmetic. What do you think are some of the top 10 most banned books of all time? We're looking at some of the older books then. I think To Kill a Mockingbird is probably listed in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. Uh, Huck Finn or Tom Sawyer. Oh, yeah. Mark Twain books in general. Mm -hmm. Anne Frank, Diary of a Young Girl. Those are all top 10. Oh, wow. Number, you're not getting number one, though. What is it? 1984 by George Orwell is the most banned book of all time. That's my favorite book of all time. Really? I have a George Orwell challenge coin that a friend found for me because he knows how much I love that book. That's because Kelly's just an anarchist (laughs) in general. That's so strange that that book is number one. So the reason is it's pro-communist ideas. I don't know that these bands are going to hold up like contemporarily, but I think when the U.S. was very worried about the Red Scare, this was the book that they were not interested in having people read. I'd say that book was more of an indictment of communism, but okay. Fair enough. Next week's episode. (laughs) (laughs) Ironically, next week's episode is going to be U.S. versus China. So pro-communism, Cold War, not far off of what we will be talking about. A little bit different way that the communism looks these days. We'll get into it. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the historically most banned books. Let's move things a bit more into modern time. What are some of the reasons that we ban books nowadays? The overarching reason is probably that they are dangerous in some way. Dangerous to society or dangerous to the people themselves who would be reading the books. So things that might incite violence or could be sexually explicit. Well, I think a very obvious one is if it's racist. Mm -hmm. Racism, obviously, falling into that same category. There's also this general, according to some of the governments or organizations that are calling for banning of books, just unsuited for certain age groups. That's what it's listed as. And I think what's interesting about all of these things, sexually explicit material, racism, offensive language is another one, is what qualifies for these tags. Like offensive language could be anything, depending on who you ask, or unsuited for certain age groups. Yeah, a lot of the books that I read would shock a lot of baby boomers. (laughs) Unsuited for certain age groups. Apparently for Kelly, that means you're too (laughs) old to read this. I, I think they might have some problems with it, yes. So when it came to stuff I read in school, like especially in high school, I read kind of the usual things that people would typically read in high school, like the Tale of Two Cities and Their Eyes Were Watching God. 
And of course, in their eyes, we're watching God. They use a lot of the N-word or a lot of stereotypes of Black and African-American people. And as a high schooler, I didn't really think of it. But when I started teaching, that's something I was more aware of. And even though my interpretations of that book, I would try to make a more feminist view. There were a couple of my students in my class asked that maybe I'd reconsider having that for my curriculum next quarter. Mm -hmm. That list that I was talking about earlier of the top 10 most banned, you have To Kill a Mockingbird, which has racist language, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, racism of mice and men, racism is listed as one of the reasons, Lord of the Flies, racial slurs, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, racism. So at least half of those books kind of fall into that same category of what you're talking about, Janella. Um, and I think traditionally, that's some of the more common reasons for why we were banning books. Those types of restrictions on books might fall under reasons we might like a book ban, and we fall on the lefty side of things and don't want to perpetuate stereotypes or offensive language. Then we start to think about whether or not we're just banning things we dislike, or if we have like a substantial reason to say that those things are legitimately harmful. Yeah, definitely the reasons for book banning has started to become very politicized, very divisive. And we'll be talking about why both sides look to ban books and how valid those reasons are through the rest of this episode. On the liberal side, there is still, you know, this is something that's carried through all the way from The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, a desire like what you're talking about, Janella, to ensure that potentially harmful language stays out of books which seems like a pretty straightforward and well-intentioned reason to pull something off the shelves. Yeah. And kind of thinking back about when that student brought up her experience, I was really glad that she felt comfortable enough to share that with me. But I think also when it comes to books or just any kind of writing, the reason I, I personally don't think banning books is good is that instead of taking it and and not letting people have their own interpretation, I think it's better to have it and then kind of bring people aware of these things that could definitely be offensive, but also have like an open discussion about how we can learn from that um, and what are the other ways that we can reinterpret texts because having some kind of representation is still important. And sometimes even though the representation might not be the best or most modern interpretation, um, it's still something that we could at least bounce off of and have a foundation from. But Josh is saying that Keeping that language out of books is important, but that's not exactly what those bans are doing. It's taking books with specific offensive language out of the hands of specifically young people in a lot of contexts, but it's not eliminating those books wholesale from being available to people outside of schools. Yeah, there are issues of people having as much access to libraries and other resources, and there's a lot of inequity that means that people probably have a hard time finding those books, but keeping them out of the hands of children who are probably still pretty young and easily upset by a lot of these things does somewhat sound like an acceptable reason to maybe limit how much access they have. Yeah, that's true. And I think having them at a certain age is probably more appropriate and introducing certain books when students are more self-aware of who they are, but also more understanding of like the complex things that can come up. 
this is an interesting conversation though, because I think in some ways it's a bit contradictory to the stance that that side of the political spectrum takes on other things. For example, it is a side that wants us to recognize the troubled past of this nation in schools at a younger age and ensure that treatment of indigenous persons is being taught, ensure that our history of slavery is being taught. And so to push for those things to be in curriculum, but at the same time look to remove these books from the curriculum seems like it could be a bit contradictory? Well, there are other ways to teach kids about these things than necessarily giving them a specific book. I think a real good example of that type of conversation being more age appropriate or less severe for a lesson for children is how civil rights education, when it exists in public school, they usually frame it around people like Rosa Parks and and Martin Luther King Jr. And they don't really talk much about like Malcolm X and the Black Panthers and other groups that are typically a little more aggressive in stating their aim. And there are probably books that can still reconcile with a lot of the things in our past without necessarily having some of the things that upset the sensibilities of children or their parents. But at the same time, I think that the argument is, if you are a child of color, for example, or another reason that books might be banned is them dealing with LGBTQ issues and the kinds of transitions or just identity formation that happens for individuals, right? Like all of those kids that are either a particular minority race, a particular gender minority, they have to deal with this stuff at whatever age they are. They're going to have to hear the words they're going to have to interact with society, right? Like they're going to have to feel it in a very visceral and real way. And then at the same time, you're telling me that other kids can't read about it in a book? Can't read about it in a book in one specific context. If it's in a curriculum, you're already picking and choosing what you're going to be covering. We have a specific narrative we want to portray as Americans. And of course, we're going to kind of take away the stuff that gives a negative light to our history. And that's kind of what we're seeing in schools now, kind of the pushback to to show more of the realistic things, the things that happen in history. Mm. So we have those types of books that have been historically banned for racist language, hate speech, etc. But more recently, things have been shifting towards a ban for themes that are, quote, immoral. And we listed earlier just how generic some of these terms are for why we ban things sexually explicit material um is kelly's fairy porn sexually explicit material sounds like it but it it absolutely is (laughs) okay well that one's pretty clear but sometimes it's not necessarily so obvious or again unsuited for certain age groups or the term immoral the terms offensive language and these pushes are being made in large large part by conservative governments and the conservative side of this political spectrum. And we see that in recent years, that's been the predominant driving force behind book bans in the United States. And I think there's some interesting questions here. And the the first one is, what qualifies for these tags? What is offensive language? What is unsuited for certain age groups? And two, to what degree do they have to go to to reach a level where they deserve a ban. My favorite 
in Missouri, one school district removed the novel Cats versus Robots, number one, which just sounds like a novel about my life. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is War. And that book is by Lewis Peterson and Margaret Stoll. And it is a book about a space war between cats and robots, which briefly references non-binary gender identity, uh, presumably the robots. <laughs> and so that was apparently enough to qualify as sexually explicit material and unsuited for certain age groups. So immorality is their main criticism, but they're defining morality through a pretty narrow lens. And oftentimes it's extremely restrictive or reality denying in a lot of cases. It seems like they are just going off of their sensibilities rather than any substantial rationale that can be attributed to like real social harm when they're talking about the types of bans that they want to implement. But couldn't that same criticism be applied? So let's think back to what we were just talking about, say books that include the use of the N-word. The N-word still exists. It's a real thing that certain children have to hear. And not putting that in books in a way denies its existence, literally whitewashing society or whitewashing history. Is there a difference between one group of people saying that we don't think that our children under a certain age should be exposed to this thing? And another group of people saying, we don't think that our children under a certain age should be exposed to this other thing yet. On a realistic level, what is the actual social harm of acknowledging that there might be people who do not adhere to the gender binary? There is a demonstrable social harm to not everybody, but a lot of people take issue with the N-word being used. Well, I think the argument is if people start being exposed to those ideas before the age where they can fully comprehend them, it can be confusing and it can lead for them to make inaccurate decisions about their own identity. I don't think a book is telling a kid to become trans or non-binary. But I think that's the that's the issue here is we can't pick and choose, right? One group of people is going to have their reasoning for why something is harmful or not. Another group of people is going to have their reasoning. And at a certain point, if we accept the fact that some books can be banned, we're opening up the door to allow whatever group in, let's just be honest, the way that this country is divided on, on a state level or even on a local level, which is how schools function, it's going to open up that conversation and, and empower those groups of people to ban what they deem as inappropriate, whether we like the reasoning or not. When you're talking about who's banning what. That's something I've also considered is like, again, like who are the people who are trying to ban the books or who are trying to ban this information? Because that to me seems like they're trying to specific narrative about either a certain culture of people or even cultures of themselves to the rest of society, kind of in the way that we want to foster a certain perspective of Americans and our history. I feel like that's similar to what people do when they try to ban books. Mm -hmm. And and right now, I mentioned before that the bans are pretty conservative leaning. The leading states with bans on books would be Texas, where school districts have banned 801 different books, and Florida, where school districts have banned 566 books. And perhaps most harmfully, Missouri, which, like I said, I don't know how many books they've banned in total, 
but they banned the most important book, Cats vs. Robots number one, This Is War. So all three of those with pretty heavily conservative mindsets are the ones that are doing most of the banning. So if we are pro-book ban in principle, we have to accept that these are the governments that are utilizing that tool the most. We can be pro-book ban in a way that does not get to this level. There's probably a happy medium. And I'm not saying book ban as in completely restrict access, but perhaps do some sort of like graduated degree of when a child would be ready for a specific book. So if we're interested in making sure children do not see material that they're not ready for, but we're also interested in preserving the integrity of the educational environment, we can do things like establish a criteria for determining if a book is or is not harmful using actual data. And then also looking at early childhood psychologists and other experts to see when would a child be ready to have a more complex discussion about racism or gender and give the books to them then. There's got to be a way to meet everybody's interests and not have these extreme, unfortunate Missouri-level types of bans. These conversations where we're talking about banning books in specific, but because it's so polarized and because the reasons for banning fall like so clearly along political lines, a lot of this sounds like uh, just cancel culture in general. And in other episodes, we've talked about critical race theory, which books on critical race theory are specifically being banned in schools across the country. We've talked about when comedy goes too far, which a lot of times has these same themes to it, whether it's racial themes or themes of gender identity, sexual identity. We've talked about cultural appropriation. We've talked about indigenous identity. And one, you should listen to those episodes if you haven't already. But two, it begs the question, what's unique about books? If we're already having this conversation about critical race theory or comedy, for example, Dave Chappelle should not be allowed to do this particular stand-up bit. Joe Rogan should not be allowed to have this particular guest on his podcast. Right? If these conversations are happening for society in general, what makes this discussion about banning books unique? Those discussions are happening kind of in a theoretical bubble because you cannot prevent Dave Chappelle from telling those jokes. You can not go to his shows and not watch his comedy specials and the market will decide, but nobody's actually going to prevent him from telling those jokes. When it comes to books, however, that is something that has translated into actual policy. So I don't know that it is the book itself that is different, but the outcome is what's really driving this decision. People are interfering with education and literally removing access to specific things from the curriculum. The benefit of books and just having access in that kind of medium, it allows the reader to have their own interpretation. And that's honestly, I mean, like for me, that's why I've always enjoyed books is that you could you could interpret and you can find representation in things however you see and however your imagination sees fit versus something like Dave Chappelle or all these other kind of stuff that somebody else that that information is like kind of being given to you, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's a passive experience when you're watching comedy. Yeah. But books are actively engaging in a way that other forms of entertainment aren't. Right. It gives a lot of agency and authority to a reader 
when you're given that that kind of power of imagination to to be able to read and to find those interpretations in books and preventing people from that kind of resource and that kind of um, critical thinking and representation, it can have a really dire effect. To me, what's interesting here also is that books might be for a particular type of child that might be having identity issues, wherever those stem from. A lot of times that comes along with just uh, antisocial tendencies. And I don't mean that in a, in a derogatory sense. I mean that in a maybe they're bullied for just being different. And so, you know, interacting with other people might not be the way that they look to explore those, those parts of their identity. But as a, as a kid who might feel otherized, sitting down with a book by themselves in a corner somewhere and then being able to connect with these ideas might be a unique experience that they can't get from YouTube or a teacher even, or certainly not stand-up comedians. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of, too, of what books do is it's a medium of escapism, is that you could escape your reality especially if uh, somebody's reality is kind of what you said, Josh, um, they're experiencing bullying or something that they kind of want to get away from. Mm-hmm. The other thing that's unique to books that might make them particularly dangerous, especially now, is they come with a certain degree of authority. When you read it in a book, it has to be true. When a stand-up comedian makes a joke about something. Okay, haha, that's their that's their opinion. Or when a YouTube video gets put out, anybody can say anything about anything. We've got a podcast. We can say whatever we want in this podcast. Doesn't make us an authority on it, even though we obviously are. But a book comes with that sense of this is accurate. This is the truth. And if there are harmful or dangerous ideas, the fact that it's on paper between those two covers seem to give it more power and therefore be more either Janelle you talk about it could be this transformative immersive experience that could really help people but at the same time it could be a more damaging tool as well yeah I do agree with that Josh books kind of have that sense of authority because the process in which getting a book published and having that like a public thing uh, there's so much work going behind that there's so many people that are invested in having this idea out into the world so maybe that's why it's just because there's so much work going into publication it feels like it has more authority or validity books being brought into school also in a way that some of these other forms of media are not also gives them a certain sense of power and means that we should be a bit more careful about which ones we're putting in front of our students and which ones they're not. Because not only does the book have this perceived authority, but now a teacher or a librarian, what have you, is also sanctioning the ideas within the book. All of these things take concepts that might be opinions or theories and start to push them in a young person's mind towards just fact. This book is speaking the truth. So maybe it's not an issue of the book being in the curriculum or not. Maybe it is an issue of how the book is being taught in the curriculum altogether. If we never see anybody looking at lessons with criticism, and I think the education industry as a whole has a major problem with that, like with history lessons in particular, but a lot of other things too. The textbooks that come out 
are problematic in a lot of cases and understate the severity of things like the slave trade. So if all of these things are coming out with one message, whether or not they've got access to books isn't the issue. It's the actual paradigm of the educators that's the problem. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that's a lot of the reasons why for both conservative and liberal concerns about like how it's being taught and what's the narrative being taught to children. And coming from a teacher side, like especially those that are like K through 12, there's not much control in what you could say, like how to introduce topics or things in the curriculum. And a lot of that is pretty limiting itself. So that's another topic for discussion. But um, that could also be influential of like how a book is being taught in schools and how they're being introduced to children. We don't have much control over what teachers say in the classroom. And if they do have their own particular agenda, and I think you'd be hard pressed to prove that there is a teacher out there that is, isn't biased in at least some small way, one direction or the other, then potentially at least limiting the types of books they could bring into the classroom ensures that they can't go too far. For example, one one book that's banned in a few different school districts that we referenced in our critical race theory episode is Anti-Racist Baby, whose author, Ibram Kendi, is trying to get Americans, quote, to eliminate the concept of not racist from the vocabulary and realize that we are either being racist or anti-racist. Now, you might agree with him, you might not, but I certainly don't think that's a, a truth in the way that the book portrays it. And so maybe giving a teacher that book as a tool in a classroom might be a bad idea. Then again, there's a lot of people who certainly do agree with that and might say that it is a truth. And maybe that book has to be included in classrooms. There are so many books. There's at least like 10. I've read 10. So so I know there's at least 10. There's at least 10. Again, it feels like the most important thing is if the book is introduced, how it is discussed and how it is taught is the bigger piece of the puzzle. But do we have control over that? We have control over what books go into the classroom and the the critical race theory bans that are happening across school districts is literally stifling what teachers can and can't say in the classroom. So if we really want to push our agendas, we can. I mean, that's definitely a possibility. I think even this discussion is happening because of the the different limitations and restrictions that come across from, from what you teach in different districts. That's another thing to consider when it comes to books or just like how curriculums are taught is that they're all very specifically influenced by where you are, your district, who funds those districts, who are in them. Um, so a lot of what you could teach has to be also reflective of, of who is contributing to those schools. Oh my gosh, this sounds like so many of our episodes, especially when we are predominantly talking about the United States. Like, here's an idea that might have merit, and we ruined it. This is why we can't have nice things. No, they ruined the idea first. We're going to go in and make it better. <laughs> okay, well, let's talk about that. What are some of the types of bans? Like, what about, let's let's start at the most extreme possibility here. Not even a school ban, but Fahrenheit 451 style book burning. 
if we could eliminate not just from school but from society in general certain books all or nothing would we be willing to do it and if the other side is able to also burn things in retaliation i think that poses a couple of interesting questions one is it worth banning something if you lose some content that you think is important so we get to eliminate books that have these particular words in it but then we're also going to lose books that we think might have some important concepts in them is that trade off worth it or is it worth on the flip side allowing everything to be published printed in schools kids reading if things that you think are unacceptable are also going to get through in that case like if we had to pick black or white one or the other all or nothing which would you rather have nothing absolutely no bans whatsoever if parents are concerned about what their children are reading or have access to they have the option of becoming more actively involved and maybe deconstructing some of the things that their children are choosing to read or getting exposure to in classrooms so maybe preventing children from checking out the kind of books that I do when they go to the library, like be with them when they go to the checkout counter. What's important, I think, is having all of these conflicting ideas to challenge in the marketplace of ideas, so to speak. We cannot challenge ideas that we do not know about. (laughs) And if the books aren't out there for us to access, how are we going to find out when the next January 6th is going to happen? I don't know if they're planning them in books, but those are the types of things we're talking about. If we stifle ideas we don't like, it's driven into the darkness and we can't actively engage with them in the in the public discourse. What about you, Janella? Would you rather have all banned or none? Yeah, no bans. I think it is uh, kind of like how you phrased your question. It's worth allowing everything, even if there are unacceptable things that get through, because there's no way that you could please everyone. There's no way that you're going to write something that's not offensive to somebody. But the bigger picture, the better question is like how we can have a civil discussion about these things um, and learn from them. That's something I, I myself like tried to teach in my cl- classes about cancel culture and how the effect of that or or taking away things or taking away narratives really actually limits your knowledge. And it gives you a very narrow scope of how you could interpret the world, how you could uh, interact with people, how you could empathize. So if we kind of limit those things, I think there's a lot of stuff that we're also going to be losing. Mm. What about, so I think that maybe the most stereotypical example here in terms of potentially harmful documents that we would be remiss if we didn't include in this show is if we should have everything out there and be able to discuss it. What about something like Mein Kampf, especially in post-Holocaust Germany and other countries around the world? This is a document that was banned because of how dangerous the ideas were. But then because of its banning, like obviously people could still read it if they wanted to. They could find ways to get it. But if a book like that is banned in a country that has a history like that, they thought that that would be the healthier route forward to sort of shove those more dangerous ideas aside. Recently, it was allowed to be published again. But for a long period of time there, the things that you're saying, at least the Germans, didn't seem to think that that was the right way forward. Well, Germany has a unique pain point when it comes to that topic. And they didn't just 
ban a book, they actively challenged fascist ideas in the open and made a lot of things illegal in addition to banning the book. But I also worry that if you make it illegal like that, then the taboo makes it enticing for people to seek out. Mm -hmm. Incels. Not just them, but yeah, a lot of them. Well, luckily, uh, since we live in America and everybody's so reasonable and willing to compromise, we don't have to have a all or nothing question. But I I do think it's something interesting to just think about is if you had to pick one or the other, what would you do? Because it is very difficult to draw the nuance. I know, Kelly, you were saying, well, we could measure the harm of books or you know, Janelle, you're saying, well, we can, these ones are going to be harmful and these ones aren't at various stages. But like we talked about earlier in the episode, it's very difficult sometimes to measure what immoral is or know with every child on the planet developing at a different stage when it's right for each kid to be exposed to different ideas. So as difficult as it is, though, do we have options for compromises in this book ban? As opposed to ban everything, ban nothing, what about bans for certain ages? What would you both say? What ideas are too advanced or too dangerous or require too much maturity for certain ages to be exposed to, if any? I don't think so, because it's really hard to interpret what someone is prepared for at a certain age not having this accessible to students at all ages, like Perks of Be in the Wallflower or, or something like that, that talks about sexuality and also like sexual violence. I think that's important to still have as a resource at any and an accessibility at any age. Cause because again, right, we won't know what's happening for somebody and how they're developing. I know for a lot of friends too, that that book specifically was was very helpful um and was very formative for them when it first came out. One thing I think that we should probably reference back to is the comments that you both were making earlier about books that are included in curriculum, because I do think there's a big difference between books that are included in the curriculum of a classroom at a particular level versus books that are available in a library. And a lot of these book bans are specifying one or the other to varying degrees. If something's harmful. Maybe the teachers can't actively put it in front of their students, but we could have it in the library and the student could go find it on their own. But if it's real harmful, then we don't even want that to be something that's accessible to students at particular ages. So a middle school library or high school library might not even be allowed to carry the anarchist cookbook, for example. I'm just imagining if I read that when I was like 11. You'd be in jail. What's napalm? Is this a new kind of nail polish? Why is it made with styrofoam and orange juice concentrate? (laughs) So I think there's three different venues we're talking about with access to literature. There's the mandatory nature of what's in the curriculum that's not even usually decided by the teachers. They maybe have some parameters and some options to choose from, but they ultimately don't get to choose too much about what they teach. Then there are the school libraries, which are often small and not funded super well. So they have to be choosy about what they actually stock in the first place. And as a result of being that limited, they have to exclude some books. So they probably do have some criteria for which ones they will and won't allow in. And the overall purpose is for the furthering of the educational goals of that school. 
Then there's public libraries and fucking anything goes in a public library. It's just whether or not a kid has access to a public library. That's the question. The last option, I think, is something we've alluded to, which is the parents. So we're having a really hard time generalizing entire populations, entire ages of kids and saying this is acceptable at this age to a child who has this particular identity. This is acceptable at this other age to a child who has these lived experiences, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, matures at a different rate. The one expert on each individual child, theoretically, should be that child's parents. Do you think that the answer could be then ban the majority of books that could be questionable in a school and let parents expose their kids to any of these ideas that could be deemed dangerous, offensive, inappropriate when the parent sees fit? My parents did not care one bit about what I was reading as long as I was choosing reading over television. Cool. So in that instance, the school doesn't carry those books. The teacher doesn't put it in front of you. You go to the public library, you find your fairy porn section, and you're good to go. I mostly read Archie comics. Like that was my reading, which was mostly pictures. (laughs) Well, the issue of having the parents control of what their children read is that if the parents have very non-favorable views of people or things they could perpetuate and for sure limit the types of books that the that their own child will read and continue to perpetuate those ideas to them but when we're allowed to have them in school then it gives us that again that resource or that option to challenge the different views that we might even grow up with in our own families but like school districts are comprised of a collection of parents and governments are comprised of, you know, elected officials who are voted on by the general public, which typically leans one way or the other. And this is why we're seeing certain states or certain districts banning books. So I'm not sure if that criticism of individual parents is unique or or solved if you were to allow school boards to make the decision instead. It looks like we're still getting the same results. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about how schools are constructed and how hyper-localized everything is. We already see that there's a lot of disparity just because of how schools are funded through property taxes. So there are high schools that have campuses larger than some colleges with like state-of-the-art athletic facilities. And then there are some schools which can barely scrape together having a basketball court. So that hyper-regionalism, hyper-localism of property taxes and whatnot means that the people who are paying for the school feel very justified to control a lot of the aspects of the school and tend to be the ones who like speak up at school board meetings or run for seats and things like that. So I think that might be another conversation for another day, but removing how localized schools are and evenly distributing funding through more collective tax bases and allowing for maybe more national curriculum as opposed to district by district curriculum, will resolve a lot of those issues. I think a federalization, or at the very least, a broadening of the bodies that are responsible for making these decisions would at least moderate what's happening. We wouldn't be seeing potentially 800 books of a very particular type banned in one state. I would get to read not just Cats versus Robots number one, but maybe the sequel or the trilogy. 
Another potential solution, this is something that's actually been in the news recently. What about instead of banning books, if we censor or rewrite books? So Roald Dahl is a incredibly well-known children's author who's written dozens of books, incredibly successful, but people are saying that some of them have issues in terms of uh, language that's used, uh, in terms of the way that he describes people. There's issues with characters of particular weight in his books. There's issues of bullying in the books that they feel was inappropriate. But instead of banning the book, the publishing house has rewritten some of them to include more modernized or empathetic you could say, language? Do we think that that's an appropriate solution? That's a private idea, though. The people who own the publishing rights are the ones doing it rather than the school districts. And people can choose whether or not that they want to buy those updated versions. Personally speaking, I wouldn't. I think that sets a dangerous precedent for altering the work of authors and could be very much abused in the future. But it's, uh, they get to do it if they want to, I guess. Like, who am I to intervene? Well, but is this, is this a better solution? So earlier we brought up To Kill a Mockingbird, which I, I think is a book that has a lot of very valuable lessons and gives insight into our history in a very meaningful way, but might have problematic language in it. Rather than pulling the book off the shelf, isn't it easier to just bleep out or eliminate some of the trouble words? that are in the document. We get to keep the lessons that we can learn from the book without, like Janella, what you were talking about earlier, maybe there are students who are going to be triggered by seeing a particular word inside of a book that they're being forced to read at school. Is, is this not the best of both worlds here? Mm, not really. It also depends on kind of how much is being edited. Kind of what Kelly's saying is that could open up a potential for like really changing the ideas of what the author originally was writing. I'm kind of on the fence about like being able to blur or bleep out certain words. I feel like that might be somewhat acceptable, but still having them in the text, but maybe not having like the actual full words. But going to the point where you're rewarding or deleting sections, I would just I would not want to see happen because that takes the agency away from what the author truly intended. And then it does change the purpose of the book and what it was trying to convey. What if there's a compromise to that? Like a lot of media now that is playing cartoons that were produced in the 40s, specifically things like Looney Tunes, are putting a disclaimer before the actual show saying this was a product of a different time when there were different levels of acceptability by showing this media, we're in no way condoning it, but we are also portraying it as it was actually produced at the time. I don't know if this makes me sound like a bad person, but when I was a kid, if I heard the teacher say something like that, all it would do is make me more interested because I want to know what words are coming up next. I'd be like, oh, something scandalous is about to happen. And that's really all I would take away. And I don't think I'm unique for like the 13-year-old boy, the average 13-year-old boy. So knowing that there were going to be dirty words in a book made you a more avid reader. That's what I'm hearing. <laughs> <laughs> At least of those words. 
that's an interesting idea. You know, Janelle, what you're saying is not intuitively what I would imagine your response would be at first, where it's almost better to just have the whole book pulled than to have people read it in an altered form. Like either read it as it was written or don't read it at all. I don't know. I guess not having it at all, but like trying to replace it with something else that's more inclusive. And I think that was my mindset when a student brought it to my attention, the text from Zora Neale Hurston, and how they would rather have that something else. So let, let's say like the Roald Dahl books, a couple of these books are Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which obviously we got Willy Wonka from, uh, The Witches, and I'm not sure if you've seen that movie, it was relatively recent, but some of the language that's used to describe, for example, in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, some of the kids who weren't Charlie, they used things like fat, ugly, black, white, mad, crazy. Puffin Books, uh, who's Doll's publisher, they hired a sensitivity readers to go through and eliminate things that they might see as problematic. Or in the TV show The Witches, you have the good witches who are played by actresses who are generally considered to be beautiful. And then when they unveil their real form, one of the witches had uh, physical deformities and features that might be considered anti-Semitic. And there was a lot of backlash because what this book or subsequent movie is saying is that these sorts of things are ugly. And if you're a child that might share some of those characteristics, whether it be physical deformity, whether it be you know, just general physical appearance, it might not feel so great to read a book like that. So going through and censoring the books to keep the story, but eliminate some of the less empathetic aspects or language within it seems like a potential solution versus these complete bans that we're talking about. Maybe a better compromise is not to say we're banning these books because we don't like the insensitive language but to instead feature books that tell stories that children would want to hear, but do feature and celebrate diversity and body differences and disability and things along those lines. A lot of children's publishers now and the illustrators are doing things like showing families with same-sex parents, characters, you can see their hearing aids, people who use mobility aids. All of these different things are starting to become features of books. So I think what we need to do is maybe not ban books, but maybe not also just have the books we've always had because we've always had them. And because we've always had them, we must therefore keep them, but they're bad. So we must fix them so we can keep them. There are so many books. There are so many better books. Just ignore these ones. Don't ban them. Ignore them and put out put out the stuff, put it on display that actually features characters that look like these kids and and they're the heroes of the story yeah i don't think banning it and like getting like even though i want to replace that within my curriculum and i would have i still advocate for that text because the way i'd interpret it was very having a more feminist view but kind of like what kelly was saying is that there there are so many other texts and because they brought that to my attention. I'm happy about that because it made me recognize, oh, why do I have this text that I've just, this is kind of really the only one text that I've really been exposed to, but there really are other stuff that are more inclusive, that are more celebratory of race and diversity. And it 
like it pushes me and challenges me to look into that information instead of just staying into what I'm comfortable with. I think that that seems like a much better solution uh, for a few reasons. And one of them is everything we've talked about in this conversation so far, I'm sitting here thinking, yeah, that sounds great, but not possible. That sounds great, but that's not how things are going. You know, Janella, you brought up, it would be great if people could have dialogues with each other and learn about diversity and learn about difference of opinions and different cultures and different ways of looking at the world. And I'm thinking, okay, cool. But when they're banning books, they're doing exactly the opposite. It's not facilitating discussion. It's eliminating it. Or it would be nice if parents could take responsibility for their kids and open them up to new avenues in a way that respects the process through which they mature. Yeah, but that's not how it happens. What's neat about this, I think, is it it does potentially do that. If people proactively put out books that they feel are valuable to their community, they're not sitting there and telling somebody else that they're wrong and have to be eliminated. They're just putting forward versions of themselves. And if you had a marketplace of books, one might call it a library, uh, that was full of manuscripts of just people saying, hey, this is how I live. This is my world. Then, then potentially we do get some of the benefits that we've been trying to reach throughout the episode. Yeah. I mean, the problem with a lot of schools is that they just don't want to change. They don't want to change what they've been teaching for years because it's easy. But if if they take the time to actually look at all the different books and, and perspectives and views that we have now that are more inclusive and diverse, I feel like it would be easier than just banding everything. All right. So, you know, us on Indubitably, we have a lot of solutions. We like to tell our listeners and the world the best way to move forward, but criticizing ourselves here, sometimes we don't actually do our part in helping that happen. So here we have a chance to do that. Kelly and Janella, if you were going to write a book and put it out into the universe, your positive book, so we don't need to ban anything, but we just have all this new, influential, important material for kids to read, what would it be called? Kelly, what book are you adding to school libraries everywhere? We don't need another book from a white author. That's what I would title it. And it would be like (laughs) ironic and self-referential that way. (laughs) By Kelly Welch, the white author. Yep. Or you could get it to be ghostwritten by somebody else. Oh, and steal valor from a person of color. That's like double bad. (laughs) You're just a bad person. I'm just a horrible person. (laughs) What about you, Janella? Um, I'm not sure about the title, but as far as the content, I know I would like to have a book that talks more about the positive things of looking into mental health. A lot from my experiences from being a person of color and a minority is that having that discussion in my family was never a positive thing. And it was also never really anything that was discussed. And that's a very similar experience to a lot of other minority families and communities that when it comes to mental health, that's not something that's um, advocated for. So I would like to potentially have a book that that talks about those things and potentially giving resources and how to have more positive discussions in families. And I think that's Another benefit to what we're talking about is the needs of society and the needs of children within those societies change over time. 
And when we're still stuck reading books that are written, you know, 100 years ago, schools aren't being adaptive to a changing landscape, like what you're talking about, Janelle, that's just not something that could be found. So yeah, maybe the answer is not for schools to be banning the stuff they don't like, but but looking for things that are more relevant to their students as students and the world around them change. Josh, you did a lot of question asking this episode, but I've got one for you now, mm. which is just the question you've been asking us. What would your book's <laughs> title be? Oh, easy, easy peasy. Cats versus Robots 4, The Revenge of the Android Space Pirates. This is the positivity that I'm putting out into the world. And I do want to take a second to mention that Janella's book idea is also, correct me if I'm wrong, Janella, but a potential podcast idea. Oh, yeah. We'll see when that comes out. But I am inspired by you, Josh and Kelly, um, and how you both have taken the initiative to start your own podcast. So I'm hoping to potentially bring more awareness and representation of people on the spectrum, having been diagnosed with autism and ADHD, a fun combo. Last year, I've been really wanting to see more people that looked like me when I started researching it more. uh, And I was sad to not have that kind of resource. So hopefully I can find I could create a podcast that not only entails some of my experience, but also brings in other people on the spectrum and people of color who could talk about their experiences as well. Hmm. So for our listeners, uh, when I publish Cats vs. Robots 4, or maybe slightly more importantly, when Janella starts her podcast with a equally important discussion to Space Pirates. Uh, we'll certainly let you all know about it on our social media, uh, Facebook and Twitter at Indubitably Pod. And hopefully you can be Janella's third listener after Kelly and myself subscribe. <laughs> yeah, we'll definitely listen and can't wait for episodes to start rolling out. And you could also go to our social media and let us know your book ideas. I would love to hear if any of our listeners have an even cooler idea than Space Pirates. Uh, no, but I could already answer you that, <laughs> but we'd like to hear your attempt. Um, Janella, thanks so much for joining us on the show today to talk about book banning. And as we move through the episode book production, um, it was great having you on. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Kelly, it was great to have you too, but you already know that. Aw, thanks, Josh. It was great to have you here too. <laughs> <laughs>